The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Welcome to Spirit of Recovery, where spirituality and recovery meet with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D. Now, here's your host, Reverend Anna Schaus. Welcome to the Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, where we support your spiritual growth in recovery. My name is Anna Schaus, and I'm your host. I want to thank you all for listening with us today. I am very glad you have joined us. As usual, we got a wonderful program, and I know you're going to get uh, a lot of uh, practical ideas and be inspired by um, our topic today of uh, motivation and the spirituality of change. I want to thank you all for uh, visiting us for on Facebook, for going to the Spirit of Recovery page, for liking us there, and for posting on our wall there. I want to also thank you for letting your friends and the people in your recovery community and your spiritual community know about uh, Spirit of Recovery. I love the opportunity to broadcast on the topic of recovery here on UnityOnlineRadio.org. So uh, every week... We, you know that we do bring you guests um, that talk about topics that are important to the recovery community. And my guests are always people that are down to earth, that are knowledgeable and innovative. They're either people who are in recovery themselves or who work with or write for recovering people or sometimes all of the above. And uh, the guests are bringing you practical information that you can use and lively discussions that get you thinking. You know, you can listen to us uh, here on Spirit of Recovery in a variety of ways. You can listen live via your computer. You can listen via your smart device. You can listen to our archives. And um, you can uh, go there. You can listen on demand at unityonlineradio.org slash program slash Spirit of Recovery. And we do have uh, several years' worth of great programs there that you can listen to at your leisure. The Spirit of Recovery is a welcoming place, so if you're a person that's in recovery from any kind of an addiction or if you're the family member or the friend of someone who's got the disease of addiction, perhaps you're in recovery yourself as a family member or not, or perhaps uh, your loved one is or is not in recovery, uh, whatever, you're welcome here. Glad to have you as a listener and part of the Spirit of Recovery community. Maybe you're just curious about the process of recovery and spirituality. You're just looking for some more information, um, just want to learn a little bit more. You also are very welcome to, uh, as a listener, welcome to participate with a question or a comment uh, on our topic of the day. Again, my name is Anna Schaus. I'm your spirit of 
Recovery host. I'm a Unity minister and uh, an addictions counselor. I'm also a person who has in my own circle of love and friendship many people that have the disease of addiction. And uh, 33 years ago, those relationships were a catalyst that got me started on an active path of personal growth and spiritual development. Since that time, my walk has been an integration of the unity principles and recovery principles, and that walk keeps richly transforming my life and keeps me growing in deeper ways. I am grateful and delighted to have the opportunity to share with you these ideas about spirituality and recovery and also to hear what you're experiencing on your spirituality and recovery walk. Today, we are going to be talking about the spirituality of change. We know that everybody uh, carries within them the potential for well-being and for constructive living. And when we activate that potential, of course, we've got to change. We've got to change in how we see ourselves, what we think, and what we do. And uh, what is it that creates the willingness to change? And how do we sustain positive change? And what part does spirituality play? My guest today is Scott Breedlove, and he's going to be sharing with us about those ideas. Scott uh, currently serves as the Director of Training and Counselor Development for the Missouri Substance Abuse Professional Credentialing Board. Uh, Before that time, he spent a term as the Missouri Department of Mental Health Legislative Liaison, and he also spent seven years as the Administrator for the Missouri Substance Abuse professional credentialing board he uh scott holds the medication assisted recovery specialist certificate and the missouri recovery support specialist peer credential and he uh has been very active uh with the state of missouri in uh implementing the recovery oriented system of uh, care and he's a a very busy trainer of uh, addiction professionals He's a clinical supervision trainer for the Missouri uh, Board, and he's taught clinical supervision throughout Missouri, Iowa, and Connecticut. He's a frequent conference speaker and trainer throughout the nation, and he gave the keynote address at the uh, Iowa Governor's Conference on Substance Abuse and at the Midwest Gambling Conference. He also will be celebrating this September 22 years of personal long-term recovery. So, Scott Breedlove, welcome to Spirit of Recovery. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be a part of your show today. Yeah, thank you for saying yes. I know um, that you obviously have uh, lots of background, lots of experience uh, in working uh, both professionally and personally on this uh, concept of change. So... We do all have the potential for well-being, for constructive living, but gosh, if we're going to activate it, we're going to have to do some different things. We're going to have to change. Oh, not that, right? (laughs) That's right. (laughs) What is it that uh, makes us so reluctant to change, do you think? Uh, You know, I think people sometimes, you know, get, get into these patterns and ruts. Um, and certainly it seems easier just to stay in that, right, than to have mm-hmm. to, to make some kind of change. Um, and, and what I find interesting when I talk to folks, a lot of times I say it, it even, you know, sometimes, and even when I was using, it, you know, when a client walks into my office, if I'm working with someone, it it looks like on the surface that their life is a mess, 
right? Their, their relationships uh, are broken. Um, they can't hold a job. Um, they're in legal trouble. And so, you know, there's a part of me that thinks, oh, wow, they, they will just be excited about change. You know, they're going to want to turn their life around. And then it's an interesting concept to me that I, I find, you know, even though, again, and I'm, hopefully I'm using the you know, proper term here, but, well, it looks like their life may be full of these challenges and problems um, or negative things going on in their life that is still more comfortable sometimes than them actually, you know, putting the effort to make the change. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big stages of change belief person that people go through stages when they make change. Um, and one of the, the three things we talk about there, um, the three ingredients to change is um, ability, desire, um, and um, the knowledge to make the change. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so a lot of times I try to pinpoint which one of those is missing. You know, sometimes um, somebody has the, the desire, um, the readiness, they're ready to change, they have a desire to change, but maybe truly don't have the ability. They really can't look at their life and figure out how to go about making the changes. And so we might focus more on that. Um, you know, sometimes people have the ability um, and the readiness, but not the desire. And so um, that's a little harder. We try to work on that, and then sometimes they have the desire and the ability, um, but the readiness, the timing's not right. And so we might focus on one of those areas, depending. Right. You know, uh, what you were saying just a moment ago about sometimes, you know, like you'll see a client and you think, oh, my goodness, that person's a wreck. Why? Who would want to stay in that? But um, but as you say, they they don't um, necessarily want to do something different. And I, I think all of us, probably I can relate to that personally. There have been times where, you know, I think, I don't know, I, I don't think I want to do anything different. You know, that's what I was saying, something like the, the devil you do know is better than the devil you don't or that, that kind of thing. You think people are afraid sometimes? Yeah, I think, you know, the unknown, and I don't think we should overlook that ever, um, the unknown can certainly, I believe, be scarier than the known, as bad as the known may be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I use this joke sometimes, uh, not a joke, but a real-life story to explain to, to folks. But, you know, we had a little pet dog, a Maltese, for about 12 years, and the dog hated me that whole 12 <laughs> years. Um, mm-hmm. From day one, she just loved my wife um, but didn't care for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it literally was, she would sleep with us and my wife and her would always go to bed before me. I would have to fight to get into my bed almost every night. Uh-huh. And, and so truly I put a little table inside my bedroom and it was a nightly routine. Almost. I would walk in my bedroom and I kept gloves like heavy snow gloves on the table. I'd put the gloves on because she was going to attack me when I tried to get in bed. Uh-huh. Um, and eventually she, we had to have her put to sleep and, and it was, so fascinating to me, and this has always stood out in my mind. The first night I went to bed, I walked in and put the gloves on, mm-hmm. and then the thought struck me, she's not here. And, and I laid down, and I couldn't go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And, and I laid there for hours trying to go to sleep because my routine had been changed, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, again, I, I just used that principle. It wasn't fun having to fight my way into bed by this little dog attacking me every night. 
but it's still something I got used to. And when you try to change any routine like that, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, one thought I have is that uh, it disrupts one's uh, sense of identity almost. That, That may seem a little extreme, but what do you think about that? Just sort of like, who am I without this dog that's trying to attack me every night at, at some level? What do you, how do no, you see I, I that? I think that's exactly, I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, I teach some concepts that, that I call, um, you know, I teach a lesson to clients that I work with usually pretty um, early on in working with them called unmasking who we are. Um, you know, and I keep, I, I use a lot of real life references when I'm working with folks, but it's the old fat Albert show, mm-hmm. um, and I think it was Mushmouth was his name, mm-hmm. um, you know, but he had this mask, uh, and in a couple of years ago, they made a, a real movie called Fat Albert, um, a Hollywood movie, and in that movie, he was trying to, he, they were trying to convince him to take his mask off, and he, he was scared to because he said, I don't know if there's anything underneath, uh-huh. you know, and certainly depending on how early someone in life started using and things. Uh, and the NA Blue Book talks about this, but, you know, for, for some of us, addiction became our identity. I mean, you think about who we hung out with, um, who we identify, just it was all wrapped up in addiction. And if you take that away, what do I have? You, you know, who, like you said it, who am I? What's my purpose if it's not getting high today? Mm-hmm. So certainly a scary proposition. Right, for sure. Um, I want to back up a little bit. You talked about the stages of, of change, and uh, that, that comes uh, certainly from a, from a point of view or a, a therapeutic uh, concept or paradigm called motivational interviewing, which is fascinating uh, to me, makes so much sense. And my understanding of that is that that initially was developed to help people with other kind of health issues uh, that needed to make some kind of a lifestyle change. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the the underpinning, the the underlying philosophy behind um, motivational interviewing and the stages of change. Yeah, the the general concept is, and, and yeah, it's interesting. It could be applied to whether you're buying an appliance, weight loss, certainly addiction, but the concept is, you know, when someone is within a certain lifestyle for a period of time, most people don't just kind of wake up one day and make some major life change um, immediately, but that they actually go through stages. Um, you know, there's the stage when they're doing the lifestyle. So if we applied that to addiction, you know, there are people today all over the world that are currently in addiction, and it's not even in their mind that they're going to stop. They're currently using and they're not even thinking about it. And then maybe for whatever reason, you know, something happens, they get in legal trouble. Um, But if you start working with them, you know, the concept is that you begin to move them along in this change process, which goes through stages, including they begin to think about maybe I should change. That should hopefully then lead to preparing to change. Um, And then they actually start to make the change and then, you know, maintain that. And then the motivational part that you tie into that, um, you know, depending on where someone is, you would use different techniques and and counseling styles and interview um, depending on what stage someone's in. And and just a quick example, you know, if I'm working with someone and we are, and I know they're preparing, they want to make this change in their life, 
I may do envisioning, I call it. You know, so I was working with a guy not too long ago, you know, who basically his daughter's in third or fourth grade, and he's never been at one of her school events because he's always been drunk and missed them. And, and we've been working for a while, and, and he's starting to make the changes to not drink. And so one thing I worked with him on, you know, I knew he had a, his daughter had an event coming up at school. And so we sat and envisioned and said, this is how great it's going to be in two weeks when your daughter's up on that stage and she's going to look out and see her dad in that audience for the first time. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, that is a, I believe a powerful tool and a powerful motivator, but specifically for someone in that preparation, I do want to make this change if a guy walks into my office and he's sitting across from me and I immediately start talking about envisioning how great it's going to be next week when you're not drinking and in the back of his mind, he's still in pre-contemplation and he's thinking, well, what's this guy talking about? I have no intentions of stopping. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be as effective. And so we kind of use different techniques depending on where someone is in that stage process change. What do you do when somebody's in, in uh Tell us a little bit more about the, the pre-contemplation stage. Um, and uh, sure. uh, we're going to just briefly here. It's almost time for our break. Just give us a brief one, and then we'll come back and, and talk about it some more. But what's pre-contemplation? A little, little bit more. Right. So, um, you know, and that's the majority of clients I will work with, at least in my practice. They will come into my office because they've gotten arrested. A judge will make them be there. If someone truly is in pre-contemplation and they're not thinking about changing on their own, that means they didn't walk into your office on their own or they would be farther along in the change process. So, you know, kind of by definition, something's caused them to, to be there. Um, you know, and so some techniques that we would use immediately is just to try to start talking to them about the the, accident, the, the things that led them here. Um, you know, I teach anger management not one person that comes to my class thinks they have an anger problem. Um, they're there because of a probation parole. Someone's forced them to be there. So I immediately just start talking about, you know, their life and what's happened. Why would someone think they have an anger problem? So you don't think you have an addiction problem or substance use disorder. Why did a judge or your wife, send, you know, ask you to come see me? What makes them think you do? And so we might try to just get, you know, we try, I try strongly just to build a good relationship right up front and create trust and some kind of rapport um, mm -hmm. with them, you know, um, start providing them some basic information. And, and, you know, those are some techniques we might use right out of the gate. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, it's time for our break. My guest is Scott Breedlove, and uh, Scott is the uh, working for the he's director of training and counselor development for the Missouri Substance Abuse Professional Credentialing Board, and is a very active uh, trainer and counselor in the area of um, addiction. Our topic is the spirituality of change. Stay with us. We'll be right back on Spirit of Recovery. Unity Online Radio is bringing the message of unity to tens of thousands of spiritual seekers around the world. If you have been served by this programming, we invite you to support it by visiting www.unity.fm and clicking on Donate Now. Thank you for your support.
What if you could improve your health one decision at a time? Take that first step and join us each Tuesday at 9 a.m. Central and learn from experts in integrative medicine. Awaken to Your Best Health is committed to supporting your personal health through cutting-edge research, education, and practical tips that you can put into place immediately. Make that decision for yourself by saying yes to health. Are you tired of life slamming the door in your face? Did you get another rejection letter, pink slip, foreclosure notice, or go on yet another bad date? Does it seem like the older you get, the more hopeless life seems? Are you ready to stop taking no as your final answer? Then join us for Design Your Life, a talk show by Kevin Cottrell Ross, the coach's coach, Go into the locker room for one full hour with the championship coach every week and start designing your winning playbook that will make the rest of your life the best of your life. That's Design Your Life with Kevin Cottrell Ross, the coach's coach, Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Central Time on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. listening to Spirit of Recovery with Reverend Anna Schaus and her guest. If you have a question or comment or experience with today's topic that you'd like to share, call us now at 888-55-UNITY. That's 888-558-6489. Call now or email us at spiritofrecovery at unityonlineradio.org. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. If you're just joining us, our topic today is the spirituality of change, and my guest is Scott Breedlove. Scott is the Director of Training and Counselor Development for the Missouri Substance Abuse Professional Credentialing Board, and he is a very active uh, trainer and speaker in the area of addiction counseling and works with professionals and also has his own practice. He's also a person that has 22 years of personal long-term recovery. So before I get back to my conversation with Scott, I invite you to join me for a moment of uh, meditation in the Serenity Minute. So I invite you to be aware of your breath and allow yourself to relax. Feel that peaceful presence of your higher power with you, within you, all around you. And share with me this constructive idea. I know my higher power is with me, and so I am free to change and grow. I know my higher power is with me, so I am free to change and grow to fulfill my spiritual purpose. And so we take a moment in the quiet.
Thank you, friends, for joining me in the Serenity Minute. And I hope that that was a moment for you to become aware of the presence and the love of your higher power. Now I'm back to my conversation with Scott Breedlove, and we're talking about the spirituality of change. So, uh, Scott, before the break, uh, you were sharing with us about the stages of change and about the idea of, of the the pre-contemplation stage and and, uh, and so forth and how a person might not quite be ready to change, but they're there and, and getting some help and beginning to address that and move them through some opportunities to uh, see that maybe they could do some things differently that would improve their lives. So what's the spiritual component of that? Has spirituality play a part in this? Yeah, and, you know, certainly different people have different concepts, um, and I probe the concept of spirituality with all my clients. And one definition um, that I'd come across a, a while back, several years ago, um, talks about spirituality is, you know, someone's personal quest for understanding answers about life, about meaning, about relationship. So I think most everyone I work with or across has some of those same basic questions. And, and so, you know, one of the main questions I ask every client, and, and it's interesting, Sunday, this past Sunday night, I had three clients I was teaching a class to. And so one of the questions I ask all of them is, what are you trying to accomplish before you die? What's your purpose for being here? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I'm looking for that motivation. What is it that, that they're excited about? What is it that gets them up tomorrow morning? What in you know? And to me, that's a spiritual concept. What is your purpose? You know, three of those guys. One of the the gentlemen told me um, his daughter. Um, he said, you know, he had a, um, a drug lifestyle and, and was basically a selfish person. And he said um, when he had his daughter about 18 months ago, the first time he looked at her, he said, I've got to do something different for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we talked about that a little bit. The other guy, um, I said, what are you wanting to accomplish before you die? And he said, I want to, he said, it's probably beyond my reach and you're going to think it's goofy. He said, but I want to be a famous chef. Hmm. And, you know, I asked him, well, why is that beyond your reach? And he said, just because some of the choices I've made. that he's 23. You know, and I said, that's, <laughs> so, that's not beyond your reach. Let's talk about that. And it was very interesting because the third guy looked at all of us in the room and he said, I have no idea why I'm here. Uh, and he just dropped his head and you could see the hopelessness in that statement. And, and again, to me, that ties back to spirituality and I think one of the key factors in help pe- helping people change is if, if I have no concept of why I'm here, if I don't have meaning to life, if when I wake up tomorrow morning, I don't know what my purpose is, then I think it becomes very easy to, to use a substance or do anything else. Uh, why does it matter if I don't have a purpose? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have a, a story yourself about finding your purpose that I think really hones in on this. Would you share that with us? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, my own personal story, I tell people, I, I grew up what I, in what I call leave it to beaver home um, for probably the first 16 years of my life. Um, I had a mom and dad that my dad coached my baseball teams. My mom was at home when I got home from school with cookies and milk on the table. I mean, it, it was, it was a good life. And, 
And it was interesting. I came home one day at 16, and my parents sat me down at the kitchen table, and I had never seen my parents fight in my whole life, really. And they sat down and basically said, we're getting divorced. Um, Mm -hmm. My dad moved out. My mom took a job for the first time, and I'm 16 coming home with a car with all this time by myself. And that really shook my world up. I mean, everything that I thought was foundational, that was solid, was turned upside down. Um, And it wasn't too long after that, I kind of fell in with the wrong crowd and, and, you know, used my first, uh, drank my first beer, used my first joint, and went down that road for about eight years. But about eight years later, there was a lady that took an interest in me. And, and, you know, I can't tell you why. She just connected with me, and and she was a, a religious person. And she began to invite me to church, and, and I had never, well, my family was a good family. I called it the Lever Beaver Home. They were not religious people or, or spiritual people, and so I had never really went to church growing up um, or had a spiritual concept at all. But this lady started inviting me, saying I should go to church with her, and, and this was September of 1992. Um, one Sunday morning, I woke up, and out of the blue, I just called her, and her name was Myrna. I said, Myrna, I want to go to church with you this morning. And so she came by and picked me up. I went to church with her. And again, this is about the first time I may have went to church once or twice for special things when I was a kid. But this really was kind of the first time I walked into a church. Um, And, you know, something touched me in that service. And and something kind of told me, this is what you've been looking for. This is your purpose. Um, It's very interesting. It was a, a church that kind of does what they call altar calls. And I went up to the front of the church at the end of that service and dedicated my life. And I went home that afternoon, and literally, I had a closet full of drugs because I was one of the main drug dealers in my town. Um, And I threw all the drugs away that day and um, started attending church regularly. And, you know, now um, I—that wasn't in my bio, but I actually pastor a church full-time besides my secular work. I'm a senior pastor of a church, but— I haven't touched, so it'll be 22 years this September. That was September of 92, and I haven't touched drugs since. You, you know, and mm-hmm. when I explain that to people, you know, and there's a lot of past recovery. I can only tell mine. Mm-hmm. But when people say, really, what makes, what, what, what was the key there? And for me, literally, it was, I found purpose. My spiritual journey came to an end that day, if you will. It landed in church. Um, and 22 years later, every day when I wake up tomorrow morning, I still have that same purpose. It hasn't left. Mm-hmm. And so drugs really are not appealing to me, the thought of, you know, using again, um, because what I have today, my purpose today and stuff is so much greater than, than what, you know, marijuana or heroin or anything else could give me. So mm-hmm. you know, that's kind of my story. Right. This it's a a wonderful story, and one thing that comes to mind that I think is so interesting when you say that in that moment that do you want me to talk? Well, I think we just dropped okay. the call. Uh, no, I'm back. Okay, we're back. Sorry. Anyway, that um that you. Did you, when you had, say you had a, a purpose, was it a, a sense of God's calling me to be a pastor or, I mean, something very specific, or was it just more of a sense of fullness? Or how would you describe that, that you had a sense of purpose? What was that, what, what was that like? You know, for me, that, that morning when I walked into that church and just throughout the church service, it was like this inner voice saying, This is what you've been missing. 
this is what um, this is you know every day when you're out drinking you're trying to fill this void in your life you don't have to use these other things anymore this this is what will fill it permanently because you know I, for me again and I don't think I realized that that's what I was doing till that morning um, mm-hmm. but that I was and and you know I would go out on a Friday night and use and sell and you know I had plenty of money and there was always people around I was popular but there would be those times when I knew it wasn't real and I'd be laying in bed or I'd be in the middle of a party sometimes and look around and and still knew on the inside I was empty Mm -hmm. you know Um, and when I was sitting in church that morning something you know not audible but just this inner feeling that this will fill you you won't have to keep looking for something and so that that just stuck with me that day. So that was just a general life. This is what you've been looking for. Um, now, for me, it was a pretty quick process, and I think that may be part of my personality. But I actually um, preached my first sermon two months after walking into church. Hmm. You know, so I was mm-hmm. brand new to church, and two months later, um, my pastor had me get up and give a little mini sermon. Um, it wasn't too long after that I became a youth pastor, and now I've been a, a senior pastor for 16 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, it, so you really did uh, find that that spiritual awakening opened up big new doors for you in your life. It sounds like really made a lot yeah. of change. Mm-hmm. Y- yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, you know, and again, when when I look at. Um, you know, and, and again, I, I believe spirituality is, is that concept of um, finding understanding and answering questions about life and about meaning. And, um, and and so for me, again, church answered all those questions I had about mm-hmm. life. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I, you know, I, I didn't mention this earlier, but, you know, I'm big on the concept of inner motivation mm-hmm. um, and and the fact the three guys that I mentioned when we first came back on the segment, I was talking about three guys that I just worked with Sunday night. Mm-hmm. One of the things that not scares me, but that I was talking to the one gentleman about is his daughter. Right? When he said when his daughter was born, that gave him purpose. And, um, you know, with him particularly, he's in a, a situation because of drug use where he, his daughter is not in his custody today. And he's happened to see me and do some certain things to get his daughter back, possibly. But in our conversation, he said, Scott, i got to be honest with you. He said, if this ends up, even after these things I do, because he will be going to court here fairly soon, if they decide that, and it's still on the table, that one of the possibilities is is that they will, he will not get his daughter back, even though he's <laughs> doing some of these things. He said, if I, I don't get my daughter back, I will go back to use them because mm-hmm. this will all have been void. You know, so, so I just use that to show, again, it's interesting when you talk about motivation and sustainable change because that's, I guess, the point I was wanting to bring up. Sometimes things look like they are a great motivating factor, and I believe they can be used initially but I believe at some point that 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 motivating factor of change has to be an inner motivation, and it has to be something that that drives you from the inside. Because if it's you know in a way his daughter is an 
external motivator. Mm-hmm. And that could be good in the short term, but even by his own omission, if that external motivator goes away, then why am I still going to continue this change in this new lifestyle? Does that make sense? For sure. Yeah. And what makes me, that makes me think about the whole concept that people talk about a lot of times in recovery circles, the idea of hitting bottom. Um, And I'll uh, briefly share about in my own circumstance, I, 33 years ago, I had a situation, uh, where I was in a relationship with somebody whose use of alcohol and other drugs was creating problems for me. And I used to sit around and, and think about, when's he going to hit his bottom? When's he going to hit his bottom? When's he going to change? You know, and, um, and then one day what hit me was, when am I going to hit my bottom? When am I going to have had enough of worrying and, and enabling and focusing on him? And that was a big moment for me of inner motivation. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's talk- a great story. Uh huh. Yeah. So, what what is this business about hitting the bottom, or how do you see that in, in relation to inner motivation? Well, you, you know, it's funny, and, and I talk about that a lot, and and you know, and I know that that concept of hitting bottom is a big concept in our field. I hear that term a lot, and you know, so I I, I never want to offend anybody. I always joke. I, I'm not sure. Well, again, and it's interesting because the hitting bottom concept somewhat is contrary to, to the concept of motivation or stages of change. Uh-huh. You, you know, if sure. I carry it too far, uh-huh. you know, you know, if, again, most of the clients that come into my office the first time, many of them are in pre-contemplation. They, they've gotten arrested. They're, they're, they're nowhere close yet to really hitting bottom. Mm-hmm. And so if I think you have to hit bottom to change, that's going to exclude most of the people I work with, you know? I mean, my mm-hmm. only answer to them would be, well, go hit bottom and then come back to me, uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Um, so I, I always tell people, hopefully our goal is is that we can intervene in people's lives and get them before they hit bottom, mm-hmm. you know? And, and, and even in my own experience, um, I, I don't think I was, you know, at rock bottom yet. So, so I guess I, the one thing I'm saying is I think that inner awakening, that inner concept can come at any time, at any point. And hopefully some, you know, we can find folks through programs like this, I mean, in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and intervene early and, and mm-hmm. hopefully help them find that inner awakening, inner motivation before they have to hit bottom, right? I, we we mm-hmm. always use the example, even with cancer, I mean, the whole point is, you know, with many things in the medical field is when you get a certain age, you start doing free screenings. Right. You know, and the earlier cancers diagnosed or found, the, the chances for recovery are much better. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, my goal is I'm always thinking, you know, um, through the church I pastor, we do a lot of addiction work. Um, just how can we try to find people earlier, earlier in their use patterns and, and help them turn that around quicker, mm-hmm. you, you know, right. um, help them find that inner purpose, that inner desire, that spiritual concept. And, and, th- and that can be a lot of things. You, you know, I have good friends who have found their purpose in AA. Mm-hmm. And, Hang on to know, that thought. It's time, it's time for our break. 
Um, we'll be right okay. back. My, my guest is Scott Breedlove, and we're talking about the spirituality of change. Stay with us here on Spirit of Recovery. We'll be right back. Hello, listeners. Did you know we've gone mobile? That's right. Your favorite Unity online radio programs are available on your mobile device. Now you can take us with you wherever you go. Using apps from Live 365 or Stitcher, you can listen to Unity Online Radio live or on demand. To learn more, visit Unity Online Radio and click on Mobile Listening. What if you were intentional about your life, committed to having more energy and being more vibrant? Join Reverend Temple Hayes, spiritual leader of First Unity at Unity Campus in St. Petersburg, Florida, as she guides you on a journey to an intentional and energetic life. Empower your life and fully express the wondrous energy, love, and joy you hold in your wildest imagining. Joyfully and actively know that more important than what happens after you die is the deeper and enriching concern for what happens while you're living. How can you experience an incredible life right now? Learn how each week on The Intentional Spirit, Seeing and Being, Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Central Time, right here on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Listening to Spirit of Recovery, the place where spirituality and recovery meet, with your host, Reverend Anna Schaus, PhD. And now, here's Anna. Welcome back to Spirit of Recovery. If you're just joining us, our topic today is the spirituality of change, and my guest is Scott Breedlove. Scott is a very active uh, trainer and counselor. He works with addiction professionals, and uh, he is the director of training and counselor development for the Missouri Substance Abuse Professional Counseling Professional Credentialing Board. That is Credentials Counselors. He is a well-known speaker and trainer across the nation for addiction professionals, and he also will celebrate in September 22 years of personal long-term recovery. So, uh, Scott, before the break, you were telling us about how the idea of finding your purpose and uh, how people find that in different ways. Some find it in AA, some as yourself find it um, in church, in your own uh, experience of church, and, in, and for you pastoring a church and being very active in that regard. And uh, obviously, this whole idea of, of purpose, as you've shared with us, is spirituality. Uh, you say there's some studies that indicate uh, that spirituality is an important component of recovery. What are, what are they telling us? What do the studies say about that? Yeah. You know, certainly, and I always I like to tell folks, you know, I'm a pastor. So when I say I believe faith, spirituality, um, will help you not to use drugs or alcohol. Um, you know, I could be looked at as being biased. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we use some studies, and some go back as far as 2001. There was um, a study done by the 
Columbia University Center of Addiction and Substance Abuse called So Help Me God, Substance Abuse, Religion, and Spirituality. And, you know, it's a pretty simple statement that at the end of their research, their, their exact statement was spirituality and religion reduce the risk of substance abuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, they go on with uh, quite a few statistics about the difference it makes. Um, SAMHSA, um, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Service Administration in 2005, did some surveys and, again, came to the same conclusion that people that say spirituality is important to them, people that say religion is important to them, both of those groups um, have, a much, have a high reduction in the use of substances. And I think there's a variety of reasons for that. Um, you know, again, I think it goes back to um, purpose. It goes back to meaning in life. Um, and so, you know, I, it's, I find that it's, it's a gov- the government has said this works. And so I don't mm-hmm. think as clinicians I, that we should be afraid of it. I think sometimes, you know, I talk to, I do a lot of training for professionals, and they, they'll bring up any topic with their clients, but many of them seem very timid or afraid to bring up the topic of spirituality or religion because um, they believe in some sense, you know, they've been taught or somewhere they believe this goes against the state rules. You know, they may be working in a state-funded program, and that topic is off, you know, um, that's something we can't address with clients. And so one thing I spend a lot of time with, with professionals on is teaching them how you can, in any program, whether it's state-funded or not, you can certainly talk about the concepts of spirituality and religion. And if we do not, we're doing our um, counsel, or our clients a disservice because every study shows that those are effective techniques. Mm-hmm. Good point. Yeah, it's that, that thing of maybe people making the distinction between being able to talk about spirituality and values and bring that up rather than sort of saying you have to believe this certain type of religion or something, because those are different. Yeah, those are different different concepts, you know, and so I can, um, one of the first questions I ask almost every client I work with is, do you, are you, do you consider yourself a spiritual person? Um, and, and then what fascinates me, because I've learned over the, the years that, that if they say yes, that still can mean a lot of different things. But then, mm-hmm. so I say, oh, well, if you say yes, then I say, well, tell me what that means to you. You've told me you're a spiritual person. What does that mean to you? And then we kind of go from there. And, and again, whether that's um, I believe in whatever, then I can use that as purpose in life, you, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, to, to, mm-hmm. to, to, it's about this is more important than the drugs, you, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and if you have something else you want to ask me, I was just going to use this one quick story. No, go ahead. Yeah, go, you know, ahead. go ahead. I was I was with a group the other night of about 15, and so I just asked them. I asked the whole group. I said, again, I asked that question, what's your purpose? What are you trying to accomplish in life? What's your concept of spirituality? And it was an inpatient program where I go give a talk once in a while, and this girl raised her hand. She said, I want to be a hospice nurse. Mm. And she started crying when she said it. And she said, I was there when my grandpa died, and I believe I would be great at being there at the end of life with people. I mean, what a great, powerful spiritual concept. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and so she was just bawling, and then I spent the next few minutes talking with her and, you know, saying, but do you see where the problem is? You will never fulfill your calling. You'll never be a hospice nurse and continue to use heroin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, that, and that's the reason she was in treatment for heroin use. So, so we really talked through that, you know, and I, and I think made some great progress with her that evening. Right. 
Yeah, so it, again, it's that sense of of having a larger meaning uh, that motivates. Yeah. And and I'm curious about people that are already in recovery, that are in long-term recovery. How does this apply to them? Do you still need to be motivated and want to change or not? Yeah, I would um, believe that none of us are are there yet, wherever there is. Um, you know, I've got 22 years of long-term recovery, um, you know, but I still wake up every day and have to find that inner motivation to continue down the path that I've chosen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think that, um, it, it, you know, that concept of taking one day at a time um, and, and maintaining that focus. So, yeah, I, I don't think whether you've got 10 years or 30 years uh, of recovery, I, I don't think that means I ease up or, or lose out. And, again, that's why I, I still continually talk about that inner drive and that inner motivation mm-hmm. and particularly you know my purpose something that won't go away 20 years down the road you know mm-hmm. what what i found or it could change you know as we evolve and maybe even in my own personal life become more aware and gain knowledge in different areas you know purpose can certainly change and so what I thought maybe was my purpose 10 years ago when I first was in recovery, if I was someone, you know, 10 years later, that I may have a different purpose. And so I think people are always evolving or could possibly change, but I think that underlying sense of connectedness, that sense of there's something greater than me, there's there's a reason why I'm here, I think those foundational principles don't change. Mm-hmm. For people in long-term recovery, what uh, supports them in wanting in when the, when you hit the wall when you hit the wall in recovery of like I I feel like I've lost my purpose you know I don't feel that excitement that I felt when I was new how do they get through that or we I'll say that as a family member and friend how do yeah, we get through that right maybe we could be millionaires if we answer this question here oh good. Um, yeah, we could write a whole book maybe if we can find the answer. I mean, that's a great question, right? And even in my own walk and even as a pastor, um, those down times where I'm frustrated or I think, man, is this really was my purpose? Is this all there is? You, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I, I think those, you know, even something as simple what you did a while ago when we come back from the first break, the meditation, a simple reflection. I think reflecting on life, I, I'm big on serving others. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes when we hit walls, it, it lends or there, it's been more about me and we can fall back into some selfish patterns, even if we're not using, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I found at least for me just getting out of my comfort zone because, again, you know, we talked about at the very beginning of the program today, people can fall into these ruts of use and it's easier to stay into that rut than change. Well, People can fall into ruts of recovery, right, mm-hmm. um, and and not want to change. And I think um, it's easy to hit a wall when you fall into that. So I think you got to step outside and look outside your comfort zone and try new things, get involved in other people's lives. I think goes a long way. Mm-hmm. Right. So like that, in, in a way, the foundational principles of, of – uh, 
participating in life, getting outside of just a self-centered, fear-based sense of self always apply. But it's funny, sometimes when we hit the wall, it's like, well, those don't apply to me. I'm having a, a genuine crisis here. That's not... <laughs> <laughs> no, this yeah, is different. Yeah, they to me. Right? Yeah. 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 So uh, what are some of the things you do in your church? You said you do a lot of uh, recovery activities in your church. That's wonderful. What do you do? Yeah. You know, we, um, we about three or four years ago, we looked around our community and said, what can we do? And, and I teach our people at our church. We have a philosophy. If our church closed its doors tomorrow... Would the community care? Mm-hmm. And we, and so we teach that if if we could shut our church down tomorrow, and the community didn't really notice that we're gone, we're probably mm-hmm. not fulfilling our purpose. Mm-hmm. And and so we looked around our community and said, what could we do to make sure that our community needs us? And so we um, went to our local probation and parole offices, our local division of family service offices, and just said, what can we do? Um, and so that out of that, we started um, every Sunday night at our church. We teach um, three different kinds of classes. We teach an anger management program. Um, we teach a parenting program, and we teach a substance abuse program. Um, and, and, and we pretty much get most of our community's referrals for those three programs. Um, in fact, other counties around us, that don't have any of those kind of programs going on but need them have heard about suicide. Really, we've expanded. We're in the second county that's near us now as well. Um, you know, so we teach some of those basic programs, and and when they need new programs, they come to us. We were just approached. We're getting ready to develop a six-month um, domestic violence-specific program um, because in Missouri, state law is getting ready to change, and domestic um, assaults, they will have to go through this special program, and a typical anger management class won't work. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, then just I got an idea about eight months ago. Um, like I said, there's a, a local residential program that was asking me to come up once a month and give a spirituality talk to their residential inpatients. And they're there for three to four weeks, you know, on average. And so I was up there one night giving a talk, and the thought struck me. And I asked the director, I said, do, do your folks go to church while they're here? And she said, well, no, they don't. And I said, could they? Um and she said, well, I'll check. And so then we talked. And so now every Sunday morning we run a church band by this um, residential inpatient. It's a 16-bed program. And probably on most Sundays we might average five, six people. We pick them up. We bring them to our church for a couple of hours. And then we take them back to the residential program. Um, and because I'm in recovery and a number of people in my church are, that's just kind of our passion. You, you know, a number of those people that start coming to our church while they were in the inpatient program are now out still coming to our church and still doing well, and we're working with them on their recovery. Mm-hmm. That's great. Well, just for a, a final uh, thought here uh, before our program's over, I know you're getting ready to host a spirituality and recovery conference uh, in Missouri. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that in, uh, as we wrap up here today. Sure. No, I appreciate you giving me the chance. You know, I, I, uh, I felt like I'd... You know, um, God had spoke to me um, about six, seven months ago and said, you know, there's probably a lot of people around the state of Missouri that, that believe spirituality is one of the keys to this work and maybe doing some work but feel like they're the only one. And so the, the goal or the purpose was to try to find folks all over the state of Missouri and bring them together for two days, once a year. I uh, hope this 
will be the first annual. Um, you know, and there's a lot of conferences in Missouri and other places where people go and there'll be 20 different sessions throughout the couple of days, and there may be one on spirituality. But this concept is is that every session in some way talks about faith, spirituality, um, and, and the, working in the field of substance use disorders. And, and so, you know, it's just to bring people from all over the state that believe in spirituality um, and how it relates to recovery so that we can be encouraged to see other people believe in this, other people are using this concept. You know, so so we threw it out there, um, and you know, we we are having a good response. I, I, I've been pleasantly surprised for our first attempt at this. We we have people coming from all over the state. The numbers are good, and so we hope again this will become kind of an annual thing um, to just really connect again that concept. Because again, I think people are scared sometimes of this topic, and so we're wanting to make it, we're wanting to normalize it for anybody in this field across Missouri that. Spirituality is key, and you can talk about it. That's right. If people want to know more about the conference, um, how would they find out? Your web? Do you have a website? Um, you contact me. Um, okay. Yeah, it, it would be the best way. They could certainly contact me. Um, okay. And What's your email address, Scott? Give my info. Your e- just your email address. What's your email address? Yes, yeah, they could email me at breedlove, and that's B like boy, R E E D L O V E. It's amazing how many people have trouble with that, but it's just like it sounds. Breed love mm-hmm. training, mm-hmm. all one word, breedlovetraining at gmail.com. Okay, breedlovetraining at gmail.com, and they could get more uh, information yeah. on the yeah. conference. And I forgot, is it going to be in Jefferson City, or where is it, it going is. to be? It is. It's in Jefferson City, the capital, on August right. 15th and 16th. Okay. So it's coming it up sounds... here in a few weeks pretty quickly. Coming soon. All right. Scott, thank you so much for being my guest. I, I just appreciate so much your your honesty and your uh, obviously warm heart and just uh, your spirituality and, and your love for uh, what you're doing and, and for people that are in uh, working at their way through their lives. And, and thank you for the work that you do. Thanks for who you are. Oh, thank you for letting me be a part and for the work you're doing. Sounds like a great great work you guys are doing, so keep it up. Thank you so much. And listeners, thank you for being with us today. And have a great week. And we'll be back next week on Spirit of Recovery. Thank you for listening to Spirit of Recovery with Reverend Anna Schaus, Ph.D., and her guests. Join Anna and her guests live every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Central Time for down-to-earth ideas about keeping spirituality at the heart of your recovery. This program is brought to you in part by Soul Matters Ministry, committed to bringing light to the soul. Online at soulmatters-spiritworks.org. Inspiration only takes a moment. If you are able to safely turn your attention away from the demands of your activities, quiet your mind and affirm. There is a divine plan at work in my life. I now relax, let go, and let it unfold. Listen attentively, inwardly, without projecting any thoughts about what you think should happen or be experienced. Become as a child. 
trusting and receptive to the guidance of spirit within. This meditative moment, adapted from Mary Cupferly's God Will See You Through, is brought to you by Unity. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again. Don't take your dreams lying down.